On June 5, 1988, the day that Mark and Sharon Vincent took Doreen to her last home in Wallingford, Connecticut, America's number one song was One More Try. In May and June of that year, that ballad, about desperately wanting someone to love you the way you deserve to be loved, topped the charts for three consecutive weeks. The only songs more popular that year were Roll With It by Steve Winwood and Poison's Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It was the fourth single off one of the hottest albums of the year and probably even the decade, George Michael's Faith. My parents had won a CD player, the height of technology in those days, at a church fair, and between my father's Led Zeppelin and my mother's Donna Summer, I played Faith day in, day out. It wasn't just the music that I liked. It was the quintessential coolness that Michael exuded, with his guitar, his leather jacket, and his jukebox. Allowed to go to the mall for the first time with a friend, yes, unchaperoned at 10, this was the 80s, I was thrilled to find a $9 t-shirt, about three sizes too big, featuring the singer's classic photo. My dad teased me endlessly. To him, a huge classic rock fan, George Michael was just a flash in the pan, a sex symbol piece of pop fluff, a wannabe rock star. He would sing Wham's Last Christmas and Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go in vain attempts to annoy me. He also tried, gently, to let me know I was nursing an improbable crush on a man who was very likely gay. But I didn't care. I was smitten. I was going to marry George Michael. My dad died in 1995 when I was 17, and sometimes I wish he could have seen what an international superstar George Michael became. He missed Michael's appearance on MTV Unplugged in 1996 and his 1998 coming out, and his appearance on the very first Carpool Karaoke for Comic Relief with James Corden in 2011. Of course, he was spared Michael's troubles with the law, but he also wasn't around to see the outpouring of grief that surrounded Michael's Christmas Day death in 2016. It's been almost 25 years since my dad died, and he never got the full story. He has missed so much. But not as much as Doreen, because she never got to see Michael set his leather jacket on fire, blow up that jukebox, and put his lyrics in the mouths of supermodels in the stunning video for Freedom 90. She never got to see his triumphant duet with Elton John on Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me in 1991, or his tribute to the late Freddie Mercury singing Somebody to Love at Wembley Stadium in 1992. No, by the time Doreen's mother Donna discovered her daughter missing on June 18, 1988, Rick Astley's Together Forever had dethroned one more try on the airwaves. And by the time Michael took the Grammy for Album of the Year for Faith on February 22, 1989, Doreen's case was already ice cold. Let's take a quick detour to 1961. In that year, Wayne C. Booth coined the term unreliable narrator to describe a tale teller with seriously compromised credibility. In other words, a narrator you can't trust. The narrator might be unreliable because he is naive, or simple, or has something to hide. Sometimes, he is just a good old-fashioned liar. No matter his character or motivation, the unreliable narrator leaves out, or conceals, or twists important pieces of the story, forcing the listener to constantly reconsider and reevaluate it as they experience it. You, the listener, might be more seasoned or intelligent than the unreliable narrator, and sometimes to happy effect, as is the case with Forrest Gump. 
But usually, the narration is meant to keep you off guard, suspicious, constantly second-guessing. Modern examples of narrators meant to make you uneasy include Gone Girl's Amy Dunn, Rachel in The Girl on the Train, and Edward Norton's unnamed character, sometimes called Jack, in Fight Club. One of my favorite examples is Holden Caulfield of The Catcher in the Rye. Holden is expelled from boarding school and flees, ranting about phonies and trying, failing, to wrest meaning from any human contact he can get his hands on. As he ventures to and through New York City, Holden is wry, funny, and disarming. But you slowly get the sense that Holden is experiencing something a step beyond disregard for and disappointment in the people around him. He's suffering from real pain and, likely, diagnosable depression. We want to like Holden. We want to make sure he's okay. But guys, something is really, really wrong with Holden Caulfield. Humbert Humbert is a more troubling example. Some listeners will recall he's the one who wooed Charlotte Hayes only to watch her mowed down in the street, leaving him free to kidnap Charlotte's daughter, Dolores, and escape with her across country. Dolores, of course, is Vladimir Nobokov's Lolita. Those unfamiliar with Lolita, or maybe just lulled by Humbert's words, tend to think of her as a young, promiscuous temptress. But she's not. She's just a little girl who's fallen prey to a very bad man. As he tries to make Lolita his own and wrest her from regular existence, exploiting her and raping her as he goes, Humbert tries to soothe the listener by declaring himself a decent and truthful man. But there is something darker in his words. Even Humbert admits that he's leading you down a crooked path, but to him, such suffusions of swimming colors are not to be disdained by the artist in recollection. As he details Lolita's abuse and destruction at his own hands, Humbert feels his, quote, slippery self gliding into deeper and darker waters. When Doreen disappeared, allegedly on June 15, 1988, Mark and Sharon failed to report her missing for three days. When Donna finally discovered her daughter was gone, the police refused to let her fill out a report and made her wait an additional 72 hours to even petition the police to find her. The narrative became Mark and Sharon's to write, and the story they told would be of a very angry, rebellious little girl who ran away down a long, dark farm road and never came back. In that story, the only other people in the house when Doreen disappeared forever were Mark and Doreen's two toddler siblings, Sarah and Paul. Sharon died from heart disease and diabetes in 2007, just shy of 46. While she lived, she refused to give up any real ghosts, but her voice, which lives on in the dusty records I've been able to dig up, speak volumes. The swimming and slippery colors that Mark and Sharon would paint would set Doreen's story in stone for decades until I arrived to do a little excavation, fill in some blanks, and paint the fuller picture. Some questions remain unanswered, but now I'm here to ask the hard questions. And like Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I'm Jessica fritz Aguirre, and this is Sticky Beak. This is episode two, The Unreliable Narrator. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. On June 5, 1988, Mark and Sharon moved their two young children, 
Paul and Sarah into a rented farmhouse on Whirlwind Hill Road. Doreen was along for the ride. Whirlwind Hill is an isolated farm road at the top of a steep hill running along the eastern edge of Wallingford, Connecticut, a small New England town of about 45,000. Wallingford was established in 1667 and sits smack dab in the center of the state. To get to 1316, you start at the town's bottom edge and make the long climb up Center Street, which inevitably becomes East Center Street, over the train tracks and across North Colony Road. Route 5, as it's more commonly known, is your typical main drag in a mid-sized suburban town. Today, it's a sea of car dealerships and super Walmart and specialty shops and salons. Back then, in 1988, Route 5 meant Bickford's and the Neptune Diner, and not one but two bowling alleys. As you edge past the center of town, past the old police station and the old town hall, you get a glimpse of Choate Rosemary Hall, a boarding school founded in 1896 and my alma mater. Known as the Choate School until 1971, when it welcomed the girls from Greenwich's Rosemary Hall, it has graduated many notables, including John F. Kennedy and Glenn Close. Choate has a complicated relationship with Wallingford. It's a point of pride bursting with art shows and theater and featuring a gorgeous pastoral campus that any town would be glad to claim. But the relationship between the so-called townies of Wallingford and the Chodies, many of them dripping with old and new money, is not always the easiest. As a financial aid kid from the neighboring town of Meriden, not to mention a day student, one of the mere 20% of students who shuttled back and forth from school every day, me and her grandmother's Buick, that line wasn't always the easiest one to walk. But I love that school, and it remains a huge part of my life. When Joe and I got married in 2010, we did it at Choate's Chapel, and we had our reception in Hill House Dining Hall, which Joe affectionately refers to as Hogwarts. So you climb past Choate, past Center Street Market in Vinnie's Deli, the self-acclaimed king of roast beef. In 1988, the market had the nearest payphone from 1316, which is still two and a half miles away. On the right, you'll see the apartment where Joe and I lived when we first got together. Houses and apartment buildings move steadily along the steep hill and grow further and further apart until you find yourself in farmland and passing Mackenzie Reservoir. There is no sidewalk, no shoulder, and unless there is a car, no sound but the wind and birds, if there are any. At night, the road is pitch black. Take a hard right directly after the reservoir and you're on whirlwind, climbing rolling hills until... On the left, and past a screen of trees, the house looms suddenly up at you. 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road was built circa 1900 by local farmer George Stevens and later sold to George Bronson Farnham, a dairy farmer who was very prominent not only in Wallingford, but the entire state of Connecticut. According to his 1993 obituary, George, a 1936 Yale grad, wore many hats throughout his life. From 1957 to 1958, he served as Wallingford's state representative to the Connecticut General Assembly, and in the 1960s, he served on the Wallingford Planning and Zoning Commission and as chairman of the Regional Planning Agency of South Central Connecticut. The list of titles bestowed on Mr. Farnham continues, President of Connecticut Milk for Health, the Dairy Herd Improvement Association, and the New Haven County Farm Bureau, President of the Board of the Day Prospect Hill School and the New Haven Lawn Club, and finally, Director of the Connecticut Milk Producers Association and the American Dairy Association. 1316 is gorgeous. It's painted a light blue and it rambles along the landscape almost as far as your eye can see. To Doreen in 1988, 
it must have been a very beautiful prison. By the time Mark rented it from George's son, Jimmy Farnham, and Jimmy's wife, Laura West, that summer, 1316 had its own little history. I got in touch with Jimmy last January. Let's let him tell it. How did you find me? Oh, we're researchers, so we pulled the deeds on the property, and it goes back. It looked like your your father was a pretty uh, a pretty well-respected, prominent guy, and he bought it. Did he buy it from the original owner? Uh, we bought it. I, yeah, I think so. We bought it in 1956 from Ray Stevens, okay. who was a farmer next door. My father started bought his farm in 1940, and then he, he added this to his farm down the street. Oh, okay. Okay. And then he, then he sold it to us for a very very low price As when I was just uh, about 30 and having a kid. Like I said, we did a little bit of research on him and, uh-huh. you know, I was able to track down, I, is it, was it the property split across the street and the remaining half went to your sister? Well, it, across the street, it was, it was, he sold the development rights to the state, so we can't develop it. Okay. Uh, the, the land around there, the house was separate from that, but yeah, so he sold, um, the house across, the land across the street sold to George Cook, who then sold it to the Gavea, the vineyard. Right. And my sister still lives there on the property. She lives, uh, she has a bed and breakfast. After spending his younger days in his childhood home, Jimmy moved his wife, Laura, and their two children to New Haven for his job there as an urban planner for the city. Jimmy knew Mark from Mark's work on his second house in New Haven, and Mark and Sharon were also looking for a place to live. We saw that you had rented it out to um, the Vincents, to Mark and Sharon. You, you did what? I'm sorry? You rented it out to Mark and Sharon Vincent at the time that she went missing? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't 100% remember his name even, but he was a guy who worked on our house as a, as a carpenter for uh, Frank's Paint in New Haven, Frank IML. Okay. I think he's retired. I don't, did you hear of that? <clears throat> no, that's new to me. So he was, he was like this born-again Christian guy who was like totally spouting, um, you know, always talking about Christ. And, very, uh, and we had to move into New Haven, so we rented it out to him because he'd worked on the house. So we did a renovation of it. Okay. And then um, things got super dark. In the beginning, Jimmy says there was no darkness to be found. So did did you meet his wife? Because she's a mysterious figure to us as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I we knew her reasonably well. I mean, you know, we rented to them. We we saw them every once in a while when we were out there. And, uh, you know, they seemed like very happy young couple. And, uh, you know, this Christian thing and him having the job with Frank IML. Laura West, whom I spoke to extensively, remembered things differently. Laura allowed me to use her words, but not her voice, for this project, and she told me that time was a little scary. Laura said, There was something very off about that family. I can't put my finger on it, but there was something really not happy about that family. I never saw him actually explode, but there was this tension all around him, as if he could go off at any minute. And Sharon was clearly skittish, kind of afraid of him. That's not the only thing Jimmy and Laura disagreed on. When I asked what kind of rent he and the Vincents had worked out, Jimmy told me it was $600 a month. And actually, I just have one more question for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Was he, do you, do you mind if I ask if he was paying you with work or was he paying you with, with money? No, they were, they were paying cash. Paying cash. Did he Not ever make... Much. I mean, it was a low rent. Well, you know, it was like $600 a month for a whole house. Okay. This is my recollection. Even, even then, that was low. But, 
we were, um, you know, as I said, he got familiar with the house because he worked on it before he moved in. And then he said, hey, he approached us, say, hey, I need a place to live. Could I live there? So. And what did you say the painter's name was, Frank? Frank I-M-L, I-A, I think it's I-A-M-E-L-E. He, he had a hardware store in the hill. Okay. And it closed years ago, but he was a really nice guy. He was, it was right near uh, on Howard Avenue. According to Laura, Mark and Jimmy had worked out an agreement, a certain schedule of weekly or monthly work on the house that would lower the monthly payment. But Jimmy and Laura's accounts of Doreen do slightly dovetail. According to Laura, Doreen didn't say a peep. I don't know whether it was that I was a stranger or something, or whether she was just a teenager. You know, sometimes teenagers kind of go through a period like that. Laura remembered Doreen as a goth Snow White, silent, with pale white skin and dark, dark hair. Jimmy used another fictional character to describe Doreen, Lydia Dietz, a character from one of the most popular movies that year. The daughter was his daughter by a, a prior marriage, I think. Yes, she, her mother, she, yep. And she was very spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was at 13 or 14. She was, I, I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very, uh, she reminded me of uh, the, the young uh, uh, daughter in Beetlejuice. I mean, she was, she was always wearing black and, very black hair, very pretty, and uh, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like uh, oppositional. Okay. He had some troubles. They had some troubles with her discipline-wise, but then you know, she disappeared. But I always thought she ran away. For a second, let's let Doreen speak for herself, because regardless of how people saw her, I know what she was thinking, or at least I think I do. Because back in 1988, Doreen had a diary, which she carried everywhere along with her scrapbook. I don't have the diary. Weeks later, Donna would tell private investigator Richard Novia all about it, and how, before her daughter disappeared, Mark burns it in the driveway at 1316. When Novia asked Mark about the diary, Mark was candid. Yes, he had burned it. He was happy, though, to walk Novia through Doreen's private writings from memory. In what amounts to a game of telephone, Novia sat with Mark and made a numbered list, totaling about four pages of what had occupied his daughter's mind. Mark told the PI that her diary contained little stories of boys and movie stars she wanted to have children with. But Mark also admitted that Doreen had detailed everything she didn't like about him and Sharon and the sudden move to Wallingford. I wish I could tell you the rest, but continuing in our game of telephone, the Wallingford PD has redacted about two pages from Novia's list. Sharon would also weigh in two years later at Mark's trial for unlawful possession of a gun. We'll get to that trial. There, she would face some tough questions from reporters. If you saw some of the things in the diary, he was mad at her, very upset at things that were in it, she said. Sharon described the writing as typical teen rebellion. There was nothing incriminating against him. As for the scrapbook, which has also never been found, Mark equivocated. When Novia first asked about it, Mark said Doreen probably took it when she left. It was important to her, Mark said, like her little cassette recorder and microphone. It may be a little detail, but this recorder nags at me. I've pored over the records, and it's not listed anywhere, including in the inventory of things Mark and Sharon later claimed Doreen took with her. In fact, the only time it ever appears again is when Sharon eventually handed it over to the police in 1989. So just keep the recorder in your mind for now. As for the scrapbook, Mark wasn't sure. Maybe, just maybe, he burned that too. More than 30 years later, 
you can feel the hair stand up on the back of Richard Novia's neck. He told Mark it was hard to believe he'd had forgotten burning Doreen's scrapbook and told him to pick on number two. He burned it at work. Now, in 2020, I can't tell whether Mark burned the diary or the scrapbook or both or whether there were two fires, one at 1316 and one at Mark's work. But one thing is clear. Mark definitely burned something at 1316 because Laura West remembers the giant scorch mark in the driveway. Back in 1988, the Vincent's nearest neighbor was Jimmy Piscotti, a plumber who still lives there with his wife. His house is Kitty Corner to 1316, down the sloping hill, just past the land that would later become Gouveia Vineyard in 1989, and separated by a low but sturdy rock wall. The Vincents didn't interact much with the surrounding farms. Years later, in 2001, Piscotti told Jason Barry of the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal, You never knew who these people were. I guess they moved away after that. You wonder. It happened on our street. It's always in the back of your mind. You always wonder when you're walking around. Jimmy told Jason Barry he remembered loud hollering from the house, but nothing that alarmed him. I didn't know what was going on. It wasn't my business, he said. I wish I had heard something, some kind of commotion, but I didn't. In Jimmy's memory, the yelling came in the weeks before Doreen went missing. This is something I've heard repeated since then as I dig into the area and speak to the neighbors. One set of sisters who came out to support an event for Doreen that Sarah and I threw at Gouveia, women who had grown up on Whirlwind, said they'd heard Doreen and her father fought for weeks in the days before Doreen went missing. But with all due respect to Jimmy and the sisters, that's not possible. Because at the most, Doreen was only on Whirlwind Hill for 10 days. I say at the most because we spoke to Jimmy Piscotti last February on one of the coldest days of the year. He met us at his house and took us for a walk with his dog over his property and out by the wall, remembering what he was doing the day he heard the yelling. He was puttering around in his yard, Jimmy told us, mowing the lawn and weeding the wall. As a plumber, Jimmy said, he would do these things on the weekends because work kept him too busy during the week. A quick look at the calendar confirms the weekend that year fell on Saturday, June 12th, and Sunday, June 13th. Whether Doreen disappeared on June 12th, or 13th, or 14th, or 15th, most of what we think we know about that day comes from Sharon's statement to the police more than a year after the disappearance. Why it took the police over a year to do any serious work on what happened to Doreen has been, and will continue to be, a major focus of this project. But for now, let's spend some time on the evening of July 8, 1989, when the police finally sat Sharon down and asked her to remember what happened that night. I will never forget the day, bundled up against the drafts in the Hartford Law Library, that I found that statement, taken by Wallingford Detective Bob Fliss at the Danbury Police Station and totaling a page and a quarter. Witness statements in an open case are generally not available to the public, but this one was because it formed an exhibit in Mark's 1991 gun trial. Again, like a lot of things in this story, we'll get back to that. Sharon first places us at 4.30 p.m. when she says Mark got home from work and she had dinner ready for him and the children. Where Mark might have been working at the time is not clear, although he hadn't yet been fired by Frank IML. Sharon says that around 6 o'clock or 6.15, as the family was finishing up eating, she went to church in West Haven. According to this version of the story, she would not return for over five hours. 
Today, in 2020, Sharon's acquaintances from church did confirm that services ran on Wednesdays, starting at 7. Given the distance between Wallingford and West Haven, a 45-minute lead time does make sense. But the acquaintances were not able to remember whether the services that night ran late, something that did happen from time to time, they told me, if there were a speaker or a special event. Now, let's hear a bit from Mark, or at least what we have from Mark. When he too was questioned in July 1989, he told the police he last saw his daughter in the kitchen at 8 p.m. as he went out into his workshop. I should note that I have never been able to get a layout of 1316, which has only passed hands in private sales since it was built in 1900. But from what I have been able to ascertain, the kitchen is the first room off the right side of the house as you face it from the street through the side door that everyone uses as a rule. And the workshop? I always wondered about the workshop because the expansive property on 1316 is dotted with all these little outbuildings. But then I listened to Jimmy Farnham again. He said at one point that he was in a workshop. Is there a workshop associated with the house? Jeez, um, I'm trying to blank. There's a, there was a garage across the street, but it got torn down. But I'm not sure when it was torn down. Okay. It had a shop in it. Okay. And that was... That's where Gouveia was, or is now, right? Yeah, across the street, Gouveia owns now, but there was a, a like a four-bay garage that my father had used as his shop for okay. the farm. And that was there for years, but I just don't remember when it was torn down. Okay. All right, well, maybe we can find that on the records, too. Well, thank you so much for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Okay, it's kind of intriguing. Okay, take care. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. An hour later, at 9 p.m., Mark says he left the workshop and returned back across the street to the house. He found the front door standing wide open and Doreen's bedroom empty. He neglected to call for help or attempt to look for Doreen because, he claimed, he just assumed she had run away, like she had a summer ago in June 1987. I haven't been able to find any account from Mark for the hours of 6 to 8 or 9 to 11.30. I don't know today if those details lie in the records the Wallingford PD is fighting to keep from me or, maybe, Mark was unable or unwilling to give them. So let's get back to Sharon. In 1989, she told the police she returned home at 11.30 p.m. to find Mark in the kitchen, agitated and getting a cup of coffee. Mark snapped and asked Sharon where she had been, as he had expected her home at 10. Sharon apologized and reminded Mark she had been at church. He was glad she was home, he told her because Doreen was missing, and he had to go look for her at Donna's house in Waterbury. He took off in his brown Chevy pickup. According to Mark and Sharon's phone records, one call was made that night to a number in Milford at 11.26 p.m. That call lasted one minute. When Novia dialed that number in 1988, just like I later would in 2020, we were both able to trace it to a church acquaintance of Sharon's, who as of today doesn't remember her. The woman was not clear on the nature of the call, she told both me and Novia, but she was pretty sure that Sharon called her and asked her for prayer. That night, Mark didn't come home until after 3 a.m. Sharon, who was asleep in bed, woke up when he came in. She claimed she asked no questions and Mark said nothing to her until the next morning, June 16th, 7 a.m. that morning to be precise, when he woke her up and told her to get Sarah and Paul out of the house and keep them out in case something happened. He also warned Sharon that if Donna called, she was not to let on that Doreen was missing and told her he was heading to Waterbury to tell Donna Doreen was missing 
and to look for her. It's not clear how long Sharon was gone from 1316 on June 16th, but at some point that day, she went to Doreen's room to see what was missing and noticed Doreen's prized jean jacket hanging in the closet. Sharon told the police, after she thought about it for several days, that she believed Doreen had left with the following, shorts, a top, purple Reebok sneakers, her purse, her phone and address book, makeup, hairspray, and about $70 which she had been paid for doing work around the house. In the years that would pass, little details about Doreen's treasured things would swim to the surface. Doreen's wristwatch was also purple and sported a broken strap. The purse was denim with a strip of embroidery. Sharon believed Doreen had stuffed all of these things into a pinkish purplish canvas duffel bag she also believed was missing. The money, worth about $152 today, was supposed to have been secreted away in a Velcro burgundy wallet. Meanwhile, as Sharon reviewed the contents of Doreen's closet, Donna was home in Waterbury. She was preparing to pick up Doreen for her weekly visitation, which had not been made the previous weekend. Donna knew Mark and Sharon had moved in the past week or so, but thought they were still in Bridgeport. So she called their old Bridgeport number, only to find it disconnected. Now, if you're old enough to remember 1988, you know what Donna did next. She dialed zero for the operator. The operator was the one to tell her that Mark had moved their daughter 40 minutes northeast to Wallingford and to give Donna the new number at 1316. When Donna called it at about 9 that night, she got Sharon, who told her Doreen was out. Donna told Sharon she would be picking up Doreen the next day, Friday, June 17th, if she wasn't doing overtime. Sharon gave her directions to the house. Years later, I would ask the Wallingford police why Sharon never told Donna that her daughter was missing. Sharon's answer? That Donna never asked. Donna was out with her sister Carol all day Friday, the 17th, shopping and doing errands. As they went, they called 1316 from payphones repeatedly to speak to Doreen and let Sharon and Mark know they were coming to pick her up. Mark wasn't there. He had told Sharon he was out looking for Doreen again. But Donna wouldn't be able to speak to anyone at the house that day because Mark had taken the phone off the wall. According to Sharon, he didn't want Donna to bother them. So Donna and Carol called and called, but the phone just rang and rang and rang. The next day, Saturday, June 18th, Mark's phone remained unplugged. Donna, fed up with getting no answer, made her way to Wallingford, carefully following Sharon's directions. Narratives on the details and timing of this visit vary. Donna and her sisters insist that Donna and Carol arrived in the morning to find Mark shirtless, mowing the lawn, and sunning himself. Richard Novia's report indicates Donna told him she arrived at about 3 p.m., not with Carol, but with her boyfriend at the time, Mark Lestage. Sergeant Jim Cifarelli of the Wallingford Police Department later echoed this version for me, relaying that Lestage had been there at the house and had poked around, but did not enter the property's outbuildings. In the third version, offered by Sharon, Donna arrived in the evening, leaving Sharon scrambling to get her small children out of the way and in bed when Donna discovered her daughter was gone. But no matter when Donna got to 1316, everyone agrees on what happened next. Mark approached the car, demanding to know where Doreen was and insisting that Donna was hiding her. Donna and Mark began to fight, and Mark refused to call the police despite Donna's growing protests. He only capitulated after an hour, agreeing to file a missing persons report that would become the first document in Wallingford Police Department file number 889112. It's one page 
and it was taken by Sergeant Edward D'Onofrio. Doreen is 12 years old, 5'4 and 110 pounds, with long, dark brown hair and hazel eyes. She hates Wallingford, isn't happy at home, and has run away to her mother's house before, in June of 1987. Mark writes in the report that Doreen has taken many clothes with her. What clothes are left unspecified, and no one asks. On the back of the report, the following is written in script. Possible destination, Port St. Lucie, Florida. That little detail seems to have been provided by Mark, who was so adamant that Donna had sent Doreen to her grandparents again that he forced Donna to call her parents to prove it. Mark's phone bill shows a call to Port St. Lucie that day. It lasted for five minutes, and it took place at 6.56 p.m. The police didn't allow Donna to give any statement at all on June 18th, looking to Mark as the custodial parent and the person who had last seen her to narrate what had happened. The only explanation, if you can call it that, for this blind spot in the record is that the police didn't want conflicting stories that might hamper any investigation down the road. In 1988, when a person, even a child, went missing, people needed to wait 72 hours to file a report. And there were many things that Donna and the police did not know, that they would not find out for over a year. But Donna knew a lot. Today, in 2020, there is a discrepancy on the timeline of when Donna first arrived to find Doreen missing and who was with her when she did. But Donna and her sisters insist Carol was there. Both women have very visceral memories of what awaited them when they arrived. A ladder was propped against Doreen's broken window, featuring what looked like a bullet hole. Her bed had been stripped and her comforter was missing. At first, Mark and Sharon told the sisters that Sharon was washing it, but it would never be seen again, because both Sharon and Mark would say Sharon had thrown it away, because Doreen had messed it up. To top it all off, Mark had just poured fresh concrete by the side steps, a project he made sure to steer Donna and Carol around when he let them in the house. And the man himself was completely at ease. But Mark and Sharon had another story to tell about the day Doreen went missing, an entirely different one that didn't involve work and dinner and church and forgotten hours. No, in this tale, also relayed to the Wallingford police over a year later, in July 1989, Mark became angry with Doreen in her room in the afternoon and began paddling her. There was screaming and yelling, in fact, so much screaming and yelling, that Sharon took two-year-old Sarah and three-year-old Paul out into the yard to shield them. Mark admitted that he had pushed Doreen during this argument causing her to back up into a window and shatter it. In Jason Barry's 2001 article, Sergeant Tom Hanley of the Wallingford Police Department admits the police did not find out until 1989 that, quote, some kind of disturbance happened in the house and was covered up and evidence destroyed. A second floor window was broken. We have a crime. We know we have a crime scene. The crime scene was cleaned up. The bedroom was cleaned up. Sharon cleaned the sheets. She said she did. She cleaned the place up, end quote. But Sharon hadn't just cleaned the sheets. The comforter was missing entirely. And Lieutenant James Cifarelli, reviewing the file at my request in 2019, told me that when the cops finally searched the house in 1989, not with a warrant, but with consent, the glass from the broken window was still on the floor. When I asked Lieutenant Cifarelli if there were any clues as to what fueled the argument, he wasn't sure but he thought it was magazines, because that's what Sharon had led the police to believe back in 1989. When I asked if that meant Sharon was there, if she saw the fight, Lieutenant Cifarelli and the file couldn't answer. If he had been there 30 years ago, Lieutenant Cifarelli told me, 
he would have asked harder questions. It's not clear to us what Sharon was thinking or which version of Doreen's disappearance was playing in Mark's head when he left Whirlwind Hill on Sunday, June 19, 1988. It was Father's Day. He told Sharon he was going to Waterbury to sit with Donna and look for Doreen. He didn't. Instead, he went to see his mother, Lori and Bethel, at his childhood home. He didn't go for comfort or support or help in finding his daughter. No, Mark never even told his mother Doreen was gone. But Donna had called Lori, and Lori already knew. So she baited him with questions as Mark sat outside with her, shirt off and all at ease, helping her tend her beloved garden. Lori would later tell Donna and Debbie she had watched her son's every move, eyeing every muscle to see if he would give anything away. He didn't. When Mark left, Lori made one last effort at cracking Mark's veneer. She offered him a bag of snow peas, Doreen's favorite, to take home with him to her granddaughter. It didn't work. Jason Barry visited Lori for his story in 2001. She was tired. She told Barry the police had visited her house almost every year since Doreen vanished. The police always said he had something to do with it, she said. One of the things was that he didn't report her missing right away. He was plain embarrassed. She wasn't getting along with the new family. I think that he wanted to get a handle on where she was before he reported it. While Lori didn't begrudge the police their suspicions, she did wish they would look elsewhere. I can't sit and say the police don't know what the hell they're doing, she said. I think they should be looking elsewhere. But then you get down to what should they have done. I don't know. I don't blame them. You can only go with what you have. But yes, they should look elsewhere. People usually want things wrapped up in a neat package. Good, bad, or indifferent. You want to know. Lori told Barry that her relationship with her son was estranged and that they didn't speak, but not for reasons related to Doreen's disappearance. She died in September 2007. Her obituary does not mention Doreen. Mark didn't just go to Bethel to see his mother on Father's Day. He also headed just a few minutes down the road to see Lori's best friend, Georgia Lewis, at her West Reading home. It was the day before Georgia's birthday and his father's. Mark didn't tell Georgia about Doreen either, so she was shocked when Donna called later that night to give her the news and ask for her help. Georgia died in 2014, but she too spoke to Barry back in 2001, and her words echoed Lori's. I think that he was embarrassed, she said. I took it that he was embarrassed thinking she would come back home. Georgia remembered that Mark was strict but adored Doreen, and she resisted suspecting him and her disappearance. I heard some of the allegations, she said, but I don't know. I never believed it. I could never bring myself to believe it. I can't speak for Donna. I can't speak for what she believes. They were husband and wife. She may have reasons to believe that way. I'm hoping that he didn't because there are allegations going around. I also pray to God Mark didn't have anything to do with it. Just last month, I spoke to a man named Pierre, George's lifelong friend, caretaker, musical protege, an executor of her estate. Pierre loved Georgia and gave me the rights to use her music for this project. He also gave me a little more insight on Georgia and her thoughts on Mark. The weekend that she disappeared, he hadn't told anybody she was gone. He actually drove over to Georgia's house to see her. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me uh, at all. Georgia was like the go-to gal for anybody who was even remotely in trouble of any kind, you know, or even, you know, personal or anything, you know. Um, my dog died, I have to come talk to you. You know, she was that kind of 
to that person for everybody a great emotional support i'm sure but the weird thing was he didn't say anything to her he didn't tell her yeah that's that's weird because because everybody confessed to georgia you know um for whatever reason you know they were they would always go to her with their troubles did georgia ever talk about uh doreen at all or the case she um not really because there was nothing really to talk about you know i mean she she talked about Doreen and, and you know, she and Laurie, are, of course, were so tight. Um, but um, she, they didn't really talk about it because there was nothing that was known. You right. know, it was just this mystery that this child is missing and nobody knows anything. And, and she told me that, you know, people had suspected Mark. Um, but, you know, she, you know, to... But who knew, you know? I mean, there was this there was this missing girl, and it was Mark, and Georgia never said anything, but I, you know, from knowing her so well, it wouldn't surprise me that she thought that Mark would be capable of doing something um, like that. But, um, you know, she, wouldn't, she never said that out loud, and, um, because, you know, she didn't know. There was nothing they could put their hands on or their teeth into, really. Right. You know, that's why, you know, Georgia never said, like I said, she never said that she suspected him, but I think in her heart she did. But there was nothing, there was nothing there. You're right. You know, there was, there was no there there, and it was just, and, you know, the, the Vincent said such a falling out with Mark um, that they didn't want to talk about him at all. You know, um, so, you know, the subject of Mark, you know, when we were at gatherings, you know, because Georgia and I and, and, the Vincents, we would, we'd had a birthday party for George in Georgia every year um, in June around Father's Day. Um, and, um, and then we would see each other at holidays and, and whatnot. You know, the Vincent gang and Chrissy and when she was still married with Dan, mm-hmm. we would go over to their house and, you know, cookouts and yada yada. So, but they never really talked about Mark at all. Yeah. If they did, they were just angry, you know. They're just, you know, then it was too much of a pain in the ass for them to, to go there because it just created a lot of anger within them um, because of who he was. Donna called Mark that Father's Day night. He told her he'd been in Bridgeport all day looking for their daughter. But Donna knew that was untrue. She had not only spoken to Lori, but also to her panicked parents in Florida. Joe and Jane Murad called 1316 that day, trying to pick Mark's brain, have him tell them anything. But Mark wasn't talking. And Donna and her sisters knew something more about Mark, something darker. So on Tuesday, June 21st, three days after she had learned that her little girl was gone, and 72 hours since the police had sent her away, Donna returned to Wallingford with her sisters, because Debbie and Carol had their own story, long buried, to tell. Children, walk softly, children, walk softly, children, 
Oh, yeah.